Terra incognita speculator. Terra incognita speculator. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's author is Jason Narung, a Brisbane-based horror writer whose magical horror thriller, A Darkness Within, was published in Australia by Hachette. Jason's had a number of short stories published, many of which contain a strong sense of the Australian outback. His story for TISF, Smoking, Waiting for the Dawn, is no exception, and also questions whether that other great Australian attribute, mateship, can abide beyond the grave. George stood by the bleached skeleton of the Wyandra stockyards, breathing in dust and sunbaked silence. The rust-red roofs of the township shimmered in the heat haze, and from what he could see, his old stomping ground hadn't fared much better than he had in the past twenty years, tired, forlorn, running out of time. He leaned against the uncomfortably warm bonnet of the commission-issue van and rolled a smoke, making the most of the inconsequential shade offered by a drooping mallee tree. The first hit of nicotine settled in his lungs, and he coughed wetly before breathing out a blue cloud of resignation. He eyed the sagging loading ramp and the warp rails. The decrepit yards didn't look like they could hold so much as a steer now. But once, he and Tommy Daniels had herded a baker's dozen of undead through those gates and shipped them back to the holding camp down the road at Cunnamulla. They'd got a citation for that. Familiar bile rose in his throat and he spat it out to sizzle on the tarmac. They'd been quite a team, him and Tommy, raising all manner of hell out here, mates all through school and then for the best part of ten years with the commission. A forex sign, the red faded to the colour of dried blood and the white to that of bone, beckoned from the roof of the railway hotel from across the railway line. That had been their office once back before the enclaves had been established and the undead had been semi-legalised, back when a collared zombie or vampire was worth a damn sight more than a ute full of kangaroo carcasses and dingo scalps, back before the big Toowoomba breakout had rolled over his friendship with Tommy like a road train. All that was left now was roadkill, twenty years old and still stinking fit to make him spit. George flicked his cigarette butt to the ground and towed it out. Sweat pooled under his shoulder holster and the heavy utility belt at his hips. He reflexively caressed the polished weaponry, drawing comfort from the long, thin tube of the heartstopper, the half-moon curve of the nested guillotine, the black mass of his sidearm. The sun beat down on him like a solid iron fry pan, making him squint behind his sunglasses, sweat stinging his eyes. He didn't need to check his watch to know the time. He could tell by the angle of the shadows that it wasn't yet noon. Plenty of time. He eyed the hotel that was, like him, a memento living on dust and memories. Time to go to work, he thought. But first, he'd drop into his former office 
and see if his old mate had left him a postcard. George leaned against the bar and closed his eyes. The railway hotel smelled as he remembered it, stale beer and cigarettes, dirt and antiseptic. He forced his eyes open as the publican plonked a glass of beer beside him, condensation making his mouth water with anticipation. The bubbles rose towards the thin layer of white foam sealing the glass, promising relief as the yeasty aroma wafted free. The publican, crow-footed eyes narrowed to a slit, picked through George's change, took what he needed and ran it through the register. He hadn't looked George in the eyes since George had walked in. George grabbed the cold glass and took a sip. The beer still tasted the same. It always did. He sighed and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand before rolling a smoke. You know Tommy Daniels at all? he asked. The barman glanced at the phone, then dumped an empty in the sink with a harsh bang and rinsed it off. Sweat beaded on the man's bald spot. George hid a knowing smile behind the rim of his glass. I thought you might, given this is the only drinking hole in town. The barman concentrated on drying the glass. Don't know no one by that name. Tommy Daniels. He was a hunter once. George took another drag on his cigarette. He felt the vaguest movement of the air from the fan bolted to one wall, its muted whir the only sound. A hunter, eh? The barman looked up, his eyes glancing off the pistol slung under George's arm. You won't need the gat. Hasn't been any renegades out here for years. They're all locked up in the enclaves, eh? You would have heard of Tommy. Here. George took an old snapshot from his pocket and placed it on the bar runner, careful to dodge the wet coaster. The barman eyed the photograph, two young men in sleeveless shirts and bulletproof vests carrying rifles, standing in front of a four-wheel drive. They could have been shooters, except for the commissioned logos on their vests. That's an old photo. Before my time, I'd reckon. He was a bit of a local legend, Tommy. I'm guessing he wouldn't look much different now. There was a chap, called himself Dan. Looked a bit like that. The barman ran a hand over his bald spot. He's dead, but... Really? It passed on a week or so ago. That you, standing next to him? George tipped his glass in acknowledgement. You here for that big round-up back in 72? George nodded, remembering the hunt that followed when the undead had broken en masse out of the Toowoomba camp. The clever ones had headed to the coast, trying to hide in the population there. But others went west, and why had always been a mystery to George. The zombies he could maybe understand. They could handle the sun. But the vampires? Where was the food, the shelter? Hunting them was hardly a challenge. Shouldn't have been a challenge, he amended. Memories of the shearing shed surfaced unbidden, the sunlight lancing through the gaps in the timber slab walls, the holes in the iron roof the smell of wool and grease and sheep shit heavy in the dusty air. He and Tommy, driving stakes into the undead and dragging them out to the van for transport. And then the screaming, the fire, and seeing her, the Greek, and feeling the earth lurch under his feet. The barman rested a hand on the tap. Another? George looked at his glass, mysteriously emptied between nicotine breaths, and nodded. How did he go? Found him myself, dead on his kitchen floor. Heart attack, maybe kidneys or liver. I never heard for sure. Didn't have a cent to his name, the poor bastard. Folks round here chipped in to buy him a headstone at Charleville. 
George looked out the open casement that offered a view of the town. The other pub was a sagging timber structure that looked ripe to collapse, its windows boarded and paint faded to non-existence. The community hall didn't look any better, and only two rusty bowsers marked the former site of the petrol station come general store. Whole streets of houses had vanished since his time. "'Wasn't a fancy headstone,' the barman said, putting a dish of peanuts on the bar. "'They never are,' George said. "'No one retired rich from the commission. "'No one retired from the commission, full stop.' "'He sculled his beer and reached for a handful of nuts. "'So you buried old Tommy, eh? "'If that was his name, it was what Dan wanted. "'Strange. "'How so? "'Every hunter I know insists on cremation. "'Just in case.' "'Catholic,' the barman said. "'They burn as good as anyone else.' George tucked the snapshot away. Shame I missed the funeral. Uh, it was only small. You didn't miss much. He took George's empty glass. What brings you out now? Work. The man's eyes narrowed. You hear about that lad out at Black Creek Station? The one that got tore up? That was just dogs, wasn't it? Poor little bugger. I can't say. Wouldn't want to start a rumour. The barman looked around the empty room. Yeah, wouldn't want folks to talk. Anyway, headstones up at Charleville. Danny Smith's the name. Another? George put down another bill from his wallet. So how was he towards the end? Same as always. The barman topped off the glass with a practice smack on the tap. Come in from his shift at the meatworks, get pissed, stagger home. He was working at the meatworks? Up at Charleville? Cunnamulla. Bit of a drive, but a man's got to earn a crust, right? Where was he living? A little cottage up the street there. It's on the market. Was thinking of buying it myself, but not much point, really. The town's gone belly up. Just a handful of locals here now, and the guys out on the stations. Between them and the occasional tourist in Truckee, there's just enough trade to keep this place open. I reckon I know the one. I might go take a look at it, for old time's sake. Nothing much to see. Every cent he made he put across this bar. George glanced out the window. Noon had passed, but sunset was a long way off. No rush. I reckon I'll have another one. For Tommy. George parked round the corner from Tommy's house after a slow drive-by. The timber building looked much as he remembered. The porch a little more sagged, the stairs a little more rotted, the paint more peeling. The iron eaves drooped over the windows, the rusted tin roof all but curling under the sun. George reckoned he knew how the house felt. He could have used some structural work himself. With a heavy sigh, he went around the back of the van, opened the rear doors and retrieved his case. Back in the merciful shade of the cab, he popped the lid and took stock of the tools of his trade. Once he had his vest on and had adjusted his shoulder holster, he assembled the shotgun quickly an action he could do with his eyes closed, and then went through the similarly automatic steps of preparing the hypo of PPD. He rolled up his sleeve and tapped the hungry vein underneath a clean patch of skin. One of the idiosyncrasies of the serum was that, for all the vampire-like physiological effects it could mimic, healing the damage caused by its own delivery wasn't one of them. Thirty years of working for the commission was mapped out on his arms in needle sticks. It was something the boffins were working on for the next version, but it had never been a high priority. There was only one hunter who had reached 30 years of service, and he wasn't likely to make another 10. 
so the doctors told him. George shot the contents into his vein. The familiar rush swirled through him, pushing him back in his seat. The world grew very bright, very hot, as his senses peaked. His heart raced. He pushed his sleeve down and went through the ritual of rolling a cigarette as he waited for the spasms to subside and his breathing to ease. Roll the tobacco, lick and seal the paper, tamp the ends, light her up, breathe her in. So pungent to his nose, so acidic on his lungs, but soothing in its own way. He was ready to go. Dry brown grass and crumbly sand crunched like glass under his boots as he walked towards the house. With every step he felt the buzz of PPD burning through his system, muscles quivering with the need for release, reflexes as taut as fencing wire, the world bright and loud and moving us a little too slow for his hyped body. For a long moment he stood, finishing off the cigarette as he surveyed Tommy's old home. The last time he'd seen Tommy Daniels, they'd been pulled over by the side of the highway a few good miles from here. The stench of burnt timber and flesh still clinging in their hair, the back of the wagon filled with recaptured Toowoomba renegades. They'd tracked the escapees to a shearing shed. He and Tommy had gone in under cover of daylight, juiced out of their brains on serum. What had it been back then? PPA? B? The Greek had come out of nowhere, a shadow amongst shadows. She'd got the drop on Tommy, and it had been luck, just luck, that George had got the shot off and put her down, long enough for Tommy to ram a stake home. No spiffy heartstoppers back then, but the old-fashioned stab and thrust, squelching up under the ribs while the reverb of the gunshot still shook the white ants in the posts. The situation had got out of hand, the other undead charging in and him and Tommy running white-hot. There'd been gunfire, blades, incendiaries. Some of the undead were kids. It wasn't pretty seeing them burn, those it couldn't drag out in time. Tommy had cried openly and reckoned he was done with the commission. George hadn't believed him. That night, when the shed was a pile of ashes miles behind them, they agreed the Greek was the most beautiful woman either had seen, living or undead. In the wagon, with the stake withdrawn in a moment of mutual weakness, under the excuse of interrogation, they'd asked her where she was from and she'd said Greece, a long time ago. George had asked the questions, but she'd answered them to Tommy, and after a couple of hours of that, George had told Tommy to stake the bitch, she's not going to tell us anything useful about the others and stomped off to have a cigarette. When he'd come back, the woman and Tommy had gone. He'd tracked them for a day, but realised pretty quick that Tommy was no hostage. George returned to Brisbane with the remainder of their capture, and never reported the run-in with the Greek. Just said Tommy was MIA, lost in the fire. Had he made the right call? If he could go back, would he do it differently? George stomped out his cigarette and took a long, hard look at the house. Nothing moved behind the boarded windows. He checked his pistols one more time. 9mm automatics in the shoulder and hip holster and a snub-nosed thirty eight on the ankle and felt the reassuring weight of the shotgun, its mag filled with heavies. He'd been putting this off for twenty years. It was time. A crow cawed, lethargic in the heat, the cry rasping across George's enhanced hearing as he approached the house. The iron gate hung open in a fence long absent of wire, but habit made him walk through and up the cracked, uneven concrete of the path. George wrinkled his nose as he paused at the bottom of the steps. Whiffs of vampire reek carried on the air. The smell of a nest was distinctive, a bit like the roost of a city derelict, that 
pungent, throat-burning aroma of an unwashed body in near-permanent habitation. Not that vampires were dirty. It was more subtle, the scent of exhaled blood and meat, of decay on hold. George cranked around into the breach and picked his way up the dodgy stairs. They creaked, but held. He tested the door. It swung open with a rusty squeak that sounded like a hacksaw through metal to George's sensitive ears, making him grit his teeth. Shotgun cradled against his waist, he let the door tap against the wall. Sunlight scorched a path across the room. Motes of dust twinkled in the beam. The rest of the room was cloaked in shadow, the furniture merely enigmatic dark shapes, a television screen gleaming in the light. The threadbare carpet cushioned his footfalls as he stepped in, his senses scanning for the telltale signs. He was halfway across the room before he felt the movement behind him, the softest, most delicate footfall, the sudden change of light as the door swung almost shut. That delay, the merest breath-long delay it took for her to reflexively close out the sunlight, was what saved him. He was used to it, surviving by a breath. It was part of the rush. The PPD could only do so much in levelling the playing field. To win against the real thing, you needed cunning and a bit of luck. He took two paces back, giving himself extra time to bring the gun to bear as she approached. Slow, the Greek, not like twenty years ago, back in the shearing shed. He's, she said, before her voice drowned in the blam, blam, blam of the shotgun. The burst shook dust from the ceiling, echoed in his ears long after the afterimage of the muzzle flashes had faded from his vision. She sprawled, spread-eagled and bloody, looking as if she'd been dropped from a great height. Her chest was a gruel of flesh, bone and blouse, her jeans saturated and pale face splattered with dark blood. George knelt beside her, held the heartstopper over her breast and fired a bolt into her before she had time to recover. Her eyes stared at the ceiling, wide and brown. He reflexively fitted another bolt into the tube and reloaded a charge before holstering it. God, she was beautiful, even like this. He traced her chin, rubbed her cheek, flicked a hair from her forehead where it lay stuck in a blood splash. His hand shook as memories of the shearing shed pulsated through his racing mind. As beautiful now as she was then, even being dragged, bloodied shirt hanging open as limp as a corpse with a stake through a heart, her life on hold until that vital muscle could beat again. The first whiff of burning flesh hit his nostrils like a smelling salt and looked around, blinking away his reverie, and found her arm lying in that narrow beam of sunlight shining through the slightly open door. The skin, scarlet and blistered, was starting to crack and smoke. His hand left the guillotine, denying the call of the primed, diamond-edged blade, and moved her limb into the shade. A footstep behind him. Still on his knees, he straightened slowly and grasped the shotgun in both hands, aware now of the glint of eyes surrounding him as the vampires emerged from behind furniture, materialised from the shadows. He could see three, sensed more. Timber creaked. He turned, heart leaping, barrel swivelling, trigger finger tightening. He jerked the barrel up. Fuck, Tommy, I almost drilled you. Tommy leaned against the doorway into the hall, arms crossed across his blue singlet. I heard you were back in town, Georgie. I was hoping you'd drop in. Sweat ran cold down George's back, his finger still jittery on the trigger. The others hadn't moved, content to hover in a loose circle around him, phantoms at the edge of his vision. I'm surprised you're still here, Tommy. Where else would I go? He moved to peer around George at the woman's body. 
Lisa only wanted to talk, you know. Old habits, George said, getting to his feet, careful to keep the gun pointed at the floor, his finger on the trigger guard. I'm juiced, Tommy. You know what it's like. But she's still kicking. Thank God he hadn't finished her. At least this way he had some kind of bargaining chip. Hadn't done anything that couldn't be undone. You took a risk, didn't you? Letting her do that? I didn't reckon you'd do her in. Wouldn't have let you anyway. She wanted to talk to you first, see how you'd react. I told her it would be okay, that I knew you. It's been a while, Tommy. Not that long. Let her up, George. I want to talk to you. He pointed over his shoulder down the hall. Tea? Is that what you're drinking these days? Tommy smiled, teeth bright. Still enjoy a good cuppa. George stooped and yanked the bolt out of the woman's chest. It withdrew reluctantly, dragging a wet, sucking sound. She moaned, blinked, her wide, dark eyes registering her delayed shock. The wound began closing over immediately. The lurking vampire shifted nervously. Sorry about that, George said, surprised to realise he meant it, and retreated after Tommy. He found his old mate filling a battered kettle at the kitchen sink when he entered. Cracks of light shone through the boards over the kitchen window, casting the room in a twilight murk. Short footsteps on the worn hallway runner urged him to put his back to the wall by the door. By the time Tommy had ignited the gas stove and put the kettle on the burner, four children were gathered around him, their eyes fixed on George. Tommy sat at the Formica table, its red and white check pattern faded with age. The kids gathered around him, vaguely reminiscent of that painting of the last dinner of Christ, but a few bodies short. Tommy Daniels and the four apostles, plus whoever many were left in the front room with the Greek. So what brings you out here after all this time? Tommy asked. Work, just work. Nice of you to visit then. I'm amazed you're still hunting after all this time. I thought you would have retired by now, one way or the other. His eyes roved over George's long sleeve. It's hard to give up, isn't it? Not for some, apparently. The PPD screamed at him for release, the flood of synthetic, vamp-based drugs trying to convince him he could make it. He only had to get into the sun. They couldn't touch him out there. The incendiary grenade on his belt could take care of the rest. You remember the shearing shed, Georgie? Tommy's voice was low and level but carried the cold menace of a knife blade on a steel. George gripped his shotgun tightly, squeezing his reply through a clenched jaw. I remember. And you're still hunting. The two men locked stairs. Both blinked when the kettle shrieked. The kids all seemed to vibrate on the spot like guard dogs on the leash begging for release. George used every ounce of will to overcome the urge to spray them all with a long burst and run for the kitchen door and hope to God the PP would give him enough strength to burst through before the vampires tore him apart. Tommy breathed out, a long, sad sigh. You just should have come for me, Georgie, way back when instead of taking it out on all those poor sods over the years. He motioned to one of the kids who turned off the stove. The kettle scream died away. You still take it, Black? Yeah. Tommy got another kid, the tallest, to fetch two cups and saucers from a cupboard. Shaking, George propped the shotgun against the wall and rolled a cigarette. Had to work hard to get enough spit to seal the paper. He could feel the stares of the kids, vacant, hungry, inhuman. One twitch from Tommy and they'd be on him. I never figured you for a family kind of guy. Not all yours, I take it. Strays. Surprised me, too. 
Must be the woman's touch, George said, lighting up. He coughed, blew smoke. The stench offended his artificially keen sense of smell, but he didn't care. For some reason, he wasn't dead yet. But if he was the condemned man, he'd bloody well enjoy his last cigarette. I heard they buried you. I heard that too, Tommy gave his trademark a four. Come on, sit down. Like I told you, I want to talk. George sat. The kids bristled as the chair scraped on the lino floor. George felt their hostility fill the room like a looming storm. At eye level, their teeth seemed much brighter, much sharper. His hand found the butt of the pistol at his hip, for him if not for them. His fingers clenched on the cool metal as the only girl, dark-skinned and flat-chested, plonked the teapot on the table, then stepped back beside Tommy's shoulder. Her gaze settled on George, steady and alien, and he became aware of new trickles of sweat running down his back. So what's on your mind, Tommy? Tommy poured two cups, the scent of tea wafting over the stale layer of old blood and dust, the bite of nicotine and freshly struck match. You hear about that young fellow out at Black Creek, aren't you? Like I said, just business. It was an accident. He's still dead, Tommy. We train the kids to live off the land, but they're just kids, Georgie. They make mistakes, just like the rest of us. But they don't always understand what they do, you know? That kid out at Black's Creek's still torn up where he didn't need to be. And you've got to take someone back to show for it, haven't you? George nodded and sipped his tea. The commission knows, Tommy. They recovered enough of the corpse to work it out. Not dogs, not weirs. Vamps. Yeah, I figured as much. Where do you reckon we could run to? George put his cup down and resettled his hand on his pistol. Nowhere's safe. Not without friendly bartenders to cover for you. What about the enclaves? They'd never shelter a renegade, not one with a blood warrant on its head. I'm out of touch. Been out of the game too long, not like you. Tell me this, though, Georgie. After 30 years, what have you got to show for it? Scars inside and out, blood under your nails. How long do you think you can keep going? How long till the juice wears out, or you do? And then what have you got? George tapped ash from his cigarette onto the saucer, then rubbed his eyes, his chin. He felt tired, so very tired. The PPD wearing off, no doubt, and perhaps the 30 years of hard, dangerous road catching up with him living on the edge and about to fall off. Sitting here with the last man he'd trusted, but not the last one who'd betrayed him. I don't know, Tommy. I don't know. So why did you wait so long to come looking for me? For us? Why didn't you lock Sandra just now when you had the chance? I don't know that either, Tommy. He focused on the glow of his cigarette, so bright, burning down, almost out. I think you do. George ground out the butt on his saucer, making the china rattle. Fuck it, Tommy, you were my mate. I couldn't hunt you, not even after you jumped ship and left me holding the can. You ever ask yourself what you would have done if she'd made you the same offer she made me? What offer was that, eternal life? I only got her to bring me across a week ago, once I realised Black Creek was going to be a problem. Up till then, it was too important to have someone who could operate in the daytime. The job at the abattoir provided all the nourishment this lot needed and kept me in beer money. Tommy ruffled the hair of the nearest kid, an Aboriginal boy with white teeth and curly black hair, rendered sexless by youth and a voluminous football jersey. You're looking good, though, for 50 going on a week. 
Uh, the love of a good woman will do that, Tommy said with a chuckle. Her love and her blood, anyway. Aging gracefully, I call it. So you've been with her the whole time, eh? Feeding off each other. George felt the lethargy seeping into his arms and legs as the PP serum weakened its hold. He rolled another cigarette. Long life and good health, and you get to keep your tan. Sweet deal. You didn't answer me, Georgie. What would you have done if she'd asked you? I'd have stayed, done my duty. My duty to my country and to my partner. To you. You know what I think, Georgie? Tommy topped up their cups, dragging the question out. I think you were scared when you found out that the renegades were human after all. I think you've spent the rest of your life trying to prove to yourself that you made the right call. He slipped his tea. How many have you collared now? I don't keep count. I reckon you do. Probably two separate columns for stopped and lopped. He stared at George as though he could see the ledger in his eyes. You ever wonder what it's like, the real thing? No. Did you? Yeah, of course. The PP's only so good. Is that why you, you went with her? Nope. Though I've got to tell you, it leaves the serum for dead. He grinned, then grew serious again. I was exhausted, Georgie. I couldn't take it anymore. Couldn't face another collar, not after the shearing shed. Not all the PP in the world can wash away that stain on my soul. George looked around the dark room. And this has? Tommy leaned back and smiled. You don't have any family, eh? George shook his head. Pity. Family's anything worth dying for. You're not dying, Tommy. Everyone dies eventually. He looked past George's shoulder and smiled. Well, almost everyone. George turned in his chair as Lysandra entered with another kid holding her hand. She changed her top. Even without his boosted senses, he could smell the recent bloodshed, the gunpowder. She glared at him as she stalked to Tommy's side, one hand resting with easy familiarity on his shoulder. Sorry, George told her. Instincts, you know. Instincts can be overcome, she said, her voice accented. Even in the gloom, or perhaps because of it, she looked beautiful, black hair shining and complexion dusky, speaking of quiet strength and resolve. And perhaps something else. Resignation? Tommy clasped the woman's hand, then fixed George with his gaze. Tell him, he said. Tell Georgie why you ask me and not him. It's been eating at him for twenty years. George held his breath, cursing Tommy with every silent blasphemy he could muster. He didn't need, didn't want to hear this. Lysandra ran her fingers through Tommy's hair. But I did. Tommy looked stunned, his hand frozen on her. You'd walked off to check the others, relieve yourself, something. And I asked him. Tommy stared at George. He said no. George looked at his teacup, feeling the bite of regret in his throat. I was doing my job. I still am. She turned away from him to concentrate on Tommy. It's in the past. He said no. You said yes. We should forget this. We can still run. Take our chances on the road. Tommy took her hands, his voice quivering as he said, There's nowhere to run to, love. Nowhere I can be sure you and the kids will be safe. He looked at George. You are one lucky son of a bitch, you know that? And why is that, Tommy? You're getting a second chance. George lifted his head, ran his gaze over both of them. How do you figure that? You're going to have to take me in, Georgie. What? Just me. Lease and the kids stay free. Tommy. His fingers closed on the pistol. 
No chance, he knew, not without the PPD. Not now that he was just an old, tired hunter. He looked at Lysandra and knew, knew he couldn't shoot her again. Ever. His trembling fingers released the pistol. Tea spilled as he gripped his cup instead. This is insane. Hear me out. You give me to the commission and close the case. Retire somewhere nice. You've got the connections to provide for Lise and the kids. Silence settled, the kids' gazes boring into him. What do you think about all this? George asked Lysandra. I think I should have killed you when I had the chance. I think I should have turned Thomas a decade ago and run away with him to Asia. But I didn't, and now I have to do what's right for the children, for our family. We always knew this day might come. We just didn't know how we'd deal with it. Her grip tightened on Tommy's shoulder, her knuckles showing white. Red tears rimmed her eyes, but she blinked them away, not letting them fall. So now I think I need someone to protect us from the commission. Someone to watch over us during the day and bring us the blood we need without anyone getting hurt. I think, Mr. George, that you can help us, and I can offer you something you need. You wouldn't want to make the same mistake twice. George rubbed his arms, filling the scars through the material. The commission will never believe it. They think you're dead, Tommy. The Commission needs a collar if they're going to be prevented from digging around. The only way to keep them off Lysandra's tail is to give them one. I have the history that we can use, right down to that empty grave up at Charleville. You can tell them you were wrong back in 72, that I must have escaped the fire and got infected, lived off livestock and backpackers till I got sloppy and killed that kid out at Black Creek. You're the investigating officer. Tell them whatever you need to to keep my family safe. If I take you back, they'll make you talk. We'll all go down, he gestured to Lysandra and the kids. You, me, them. I know that. Tommy squeezed Lysandra's hand again, flashed George a grim smile, fangs showing. Taking me in alive, you know what I mean. Isn't it an option? George clasped his hands under the table, trying to stop the shaking. Fuck, Tommy. I don't know. I just don't know if I can do this. A second chance, Georgie. The man with a cough like yours should be grateful for it. He flashed a sad smile. Then think about it some more. We've got till morning. Tommy shepherded his family out of the kitchen, leaving George alone with his smokes in the teapot. The tea was cold when Tommy came back, cheeks wet with pinkish tears. You made a decision, Georgie? You love them that much? You will too in time. Tommy smiled. Don't feel bad. Second chances don't come cheap. We've both paid the price. George nodded, a single, determined gesture. Put the kettle on, eh? They sat and drank tea and talked, just like two old mates who hadn't seen each other for years, rather than two old mates who'd never see each other again. When the sky started to get light, they went out and sat on the stairs and smoked, waiting for the dawn. This month's review book is Canterbury 2100, Pilgrimages in a New World, edited by Dirk Flintheart. The rather appealing idea behind this, the last book from revered Australian independent imprint Agog Press, unless the publisher can be persuaded to change her mind, 
is to take Chaucer's Canterbury Tales as a template and project it into the future, where a group of pilgrims in 2100 are making their way to Canterbury through a landscape that has been scarred by plague, climate change and the general collapse of civilization early in the 21st century. And to have these pilgrims tell stories to each other, which create a kind of future history and become a window, a kaleidoscope looking into a world which doesn't yet exist, as Dirk says in his introduction. So in a sense, Canterbury 2100 could be viewed as a collaboration between the authors on a shared world filled with and informed by the future history of the next 91 years. It was a great idea, but in retrospect, looking at the book that resulted, the stories fairly groan and chafe against the framing narrative. They contradict each other in details about what happens in the world between now and 2100. And that's disappointing because it throws the reader out of the narrative and makes you feel that the book as a whole doesn't quite hang together. Looking at the individual stories, I have to say that in terms of quality, it is an uneven anthology. In one sense, the shared world leads to a sameness in the themes that are investigated, generally loss and striving for survival. There are some good stories, however. Lee Battlesby's The Meta Horse Tale stands out as a very original story that looks at some old themes and prejudices in a refreshing way. Trent Jameson's The Lighterman's Tale is a sharp and poignant retelling of a familiar fairy story or mermaid's tale in his very entertaining and yet effective style. Angela Slatter's The Nun's Tale is a kind of matrix meets handmaid's tale affair with some very strong characterization. And as you might expect, there is entertaining work from Geoffrey Maloney and Stephen Deadman. Other stories in the anthology, while well put together, unfortunately fail to dazzle in execution or concept, and some didn't seem to contain any speculative element at all, other than the fact that the year in which they were set was some time in the future. While the idea for Canterbury 2100 was an engaging one, the book ultimately falls short in delivering a satisfying read. Two stars. Canterbury 2100 Pilgrimages in a New World, edited by Dirk Flintheart, is available in Australia from Agog Press. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2009. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. <laughs>